You can open up to the book of Judges. We're going to be getting started in that. You can also open up to the book of Deuteronomy. Be in Judges chapter 1, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Be good stuff. Baby, not real. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Tony, you look sleepy. You need a nap, my friend. Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this time that we have together, Lord, this opportunity to be with one another, to fellowship with each other, and Lord, just to draw close to you. I pray that that's exactly what we would do, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts, you'd move in our midst, and that, uh, I don't know, we'd lead this place a little bit closer to you, a little bit more in love with you, and, you know, certainly convicted by you. And Lord, I thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen? Amen. So the book of Judges, um, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. I, I love the book of Judges. It's just filled with wonderful and very practical examples, lessons for all of us. It's been commonly called and very accurately called the book of failures. Um, so, you know, that that's what we're going to be talking about for the next several Thursdays. We're going to be talking about failure. Um, so, you know, chipper and uplifting. Uh, but, but it's always a blessing. Let me say, it's always a blessing to learn from other people's failures. Right? If we could do that, I mean, how wonderful is that? I mean, so you don't have to go down that, that, that dark, terrible road, you know, yourself. If, if you could look at somebody else and be like, okay, well, I can pull the, the lessons out of their life. Well, then you just saved yourself. Uh, learning that lesson yourself, and and that's what this book is here for. I have an older brother, and he's often been uh, this person for me, the person who goes down that dark, terrible road. And I can look at him and say, "Well, now I know not to do that." You know, when we were when we were young, we were really into skateboarding, and you know, we were poor, so we only had one skateboard to share between the two of us. But uh, we were able to save up our money and buy a little ramp. And so we were always going up and down the ramp and doing little tricks. And, and, and we got pretty good. And, and, and after a week or so, my brother got really confident uh, in his skateboarding abilities. And we grew up in San Antonio Heights right up the hill. And it's very hilly if you've been up in that area above 24th Street. And, and so one day my brother said, I'm going to bomb the hill. And I don't think anyone says that anymore. But, you know, for the integrity of the story, that's what he said. He said, I'm going to bomb the hill. And so he jumped on the skateboard and he started flying down the 25th Street. That was, that was the hill. And it, it's, it's gnarly. It's steep. Preston, you drive up there routinely. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's no good, right? Especially for someone that's been skateboarding for a week and is maybe a little bit overconfident in their abilities. And he's going down the hill, and he's getting up, I don't know, Preston, how, how fast would you say it is when you're going down that hill? Like 100 miles an hour? I'm going to go with 100 miles an hour. So he's going down this hill, and he's going 100 miles an hour. And he's just, he's flying down this hill. And, and, and it's probably at this point that he realized that he had no idea how to stop a skateboard. <laughs> it's a bad time to realize, you know, that you don't know how to do that. And, and so he did what we had been doing up until this point, is he just jumped off the skateboard. And, you know, around about the time that you, your foot touches the ground, you realize that your legs can't move as fast as the ground's coming at you. So he, he like, belly flopped into the ground and just started sliding down, uh, down the street at 100 miles an hour, which I'm sure is an accurate, is an accurate speed. 
And and I, I remember I remember seeing them, and and I'd never seen anything more graphic, more gruesome in all my life. I mean, his stomach was just absolutely torn apart. And 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 my first thought, my first thought was, oh my gosh, Brian, are you okay? Are you alive? We need to get you to a hospital. I love you. I don't want to lose you. You have my cortisone. You're my brother. But very quickly, my second thought was, now I know that it's a bad idea to get off a skateboard that way when you're going that fast. So these are good lessons, and this is a good way to learn a lesson, right? You could look at somebody else and you could say, well, that was a terrible mistake. Well, they did everything wrong there, and you can maybe look at it and pick apart everything that they did wrong. You can analyze it. You can grow from it. You can learn from it. And then this is a wonderful thing that we have before us, a book filled with gruesome catastrophes that we have the opportunity to pick apart and say, well, now I know what not to do. I can see the steps that led up to that disaster, the, the miscalculation in their thinking, the, the misstep in their spiritual stride. And so that's what we're going to do. You're going to see a cycle repeat itself. For your, for your note-taking, you can write down the, the steps of the cycle. It's going to repeat itself, uh, I, I think it's 11 times in this book total. But it's going to be a cycle of four points. The first point is sin. Sin. Make it easy for notes. They're all S's. So the first step is sin. The second step is suffering. Third is supplication. And fourth is salvation. This four-part process that becomes the outline for this book as we move through it, it's, it's an excellent way to organize your thoughts. Sin. They fall into sin and disobedience. Israel's going to do this over and over again. This chapter, we're going to take the first chapter. I'm going to try and, try and work the introduction to the book into the first chapter of the book because, you know, uh, it's 21 chapters and I want to try and move through it uh, in, in just under a decade. So sin. They fall into sin, disobedience. And second, the suffering. The enemies come in and, and they oppress them. They rule over them. And Israel uh, suffers as a consequence of their sin. Third, supplication. It's, 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 you know, and you can come back to the prodigal son story. It's that moment where, where it says that he came to himself. And this is what happens with Israel over and over again as their prodigal, as their wayward, as they're out there living in sin, living in disobedience and, 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 and enduring the suffering that is the natural result of that. They come to themselves and they make supplication. They cry out to God. They ask for deliverance. And then, of course, the beautiful resolution of the cycle is salvation. Right? God is faithful to deliver them when they cry out to him. And I'll say that as much as this is a book of human failures, it's also a book of God's faithfulness. And those are going to be the two major themes of the book. And I, I think that we can all relate to that as, as a theme, maybe of our Christianity to, to, to some, uh, you know, degree. There's been these, these, these parts and these points that, that, that you're, that you're off and maybe you're wandering and, and, and you're distant from God, but God and his grace and his mercy is never distant from you. He's always waiting to draw you back to himself. He's always faithful to you because he can't deny himself.
and that's just who he is. See this played out in Israel today as we, as we begin in Deuteronomy chapter 7, as we look at the promise associated with this land that they're entering into. And it's this kind of transition time in the history of Israel as they've gone from the wilderness wandering to entering in and inhabiting this land that God has promised to them. We're going to discuss two promises and we're going to see how God is faithful to both of them. So if you're in Deuteronomy chapter 7, we're going to begin in verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. We're going to pause there for a second. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. Forty, Forty years wandering in the desert, because of disobedience to God, the consequences of sin. It should have been an 11-day journey from Egypt through the desert unto Israel. But because of their doubt, because of their lack of faith, 40 years, a generation has passed away. Now he's saying, you're going to enter in, but it's not going to be easy. There's going to be a seven-nation opposition. Right? These guys are going to stand against you, and they are greater and stronger than you. I love numbers in the Bible, right? I got to say, and I, and, I, and I said that I would talk about this today. I'm not going to disappoint. We're going to get a little bit into biblical numerology It'd be, because I, I find that, that oftentimes numbers in the Bible carry a, a, as much symbolic weight as they do literal weight. Now, there were literally seven nations in the land that would be the opposition to Israel entering in. But you have to ask yourself, well, what is seven mean in the Bible, and is this a significant picture of something else that could be very practical to us? You know, because I, I believe that there is a, a, a powerful picture here for you if, you if you take it in, if you consider it, if you weigh it. But before we get to seven, there's all those numbers that come before it. You see one a lot in the Bible. And, and what, is, what does one mean? Right? I mean, look at Ephesians 4 5. You can write it down if you're a note taker. I, I encourage you to take notes. Uh, Ephesians 4 5 says that there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God. It's a lot of ones. One God and Father of all is over all, through all, and in all. What is one all about? Yeah, it's, it's, it's this idea of, of, of God and, and unity in, in this divinity. It's this whole idea of singularity. It's this, it's, it's this, uh, it's, it's this beautiful picture that's played out in the Shema, right? This great, uh, Jewish verse that they all had to know, they all had to memorize is Deuteronomy 6-4. Right, what does that say? Behold the Lord our God, the Lord is, is one. I mean, the, the, this was this was the national cry of monotheism. It's the unity of God and His created order. And what does He say about a man and a wife? Right, yeah, a man is to leave his parents. He's to be joined together with his wife, and the two will become what? One flesh. Right. It's this idea of unity in the Bible, and it plays out as this picture of in the number one. What about two? Well, if one is unity, what do you think two is? Yeah, it's, it's, it's division. 
right? I mean, it's all about this dividing the singular unit. And Jesus had two natures, right? He's human and divine, right? You, you look at uh, the, the Bible, the way that it's organized. How is it organized? The old and the new. What about the covenants? It's the old and the new. You, you got the, the covenant of the law, then the covenant of grace, the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And essentially there's two types of people. Who are they? There's, yeah, there's the sheep and the goats, right? The believers and the unbelievers, right? So it's this division. How does Jesus say he's going to divide the sheep and the goats? He's going to put them on the right and on the left. I mean, so it's all about dividing the singular unit. So now we got one and two, but what about three? I love three. I love three. Three three is divine perfection. And you can look at this. It's consistent all the way through the Bible. If you're getting bored already, this is going to get really interesting. Right? I promise. I won't let you down. I might let you down. God, you look at divine perfection. You consider it in context of the fact that it represents divine perfection. What do we know about God? That he's a trinity, right? He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, are we a trinity? Yeah, we're body, soul, and spirit. You see, God and his nature is trinity, and he's created all things in this divinely perfect model. What about the universe? I mean, we're created in the trinity. Is the universe created in a trinity? Yeah. It's time, space, and matter. And you see that in the first verse of the Bible, don't you? In the beginning, which is time, God created the heavens, which is space, and the earth, which is matter. So he's created everything in a trinity. Then each one of those parts of the trinity, I'm losing more of my Bible. I don't have anything in the New Testament after Matthew chapter 6. I just realized that today. <laughs> um, you, you take a look at, at, at each parts of those, trinity, time, space, and matter, and each one of those is a trinity. You look at time. What is that? Yeah, it's past, present, and future. What about space? It's height, width, and depth. What about matter? It's solid, liquid, and gas. This is the way that God's chosen to create everything. He's created it in his image according to his nature. He's created it and broken it down by trinities, this divinely perfect model. It's really interesting. Okay, now let's, let's jump ahead. I'm not going to do every number. I'm just going to do the ones that uh, that tantalize me. I'm sorry. Wow, you were actually enjoying it. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. Six. What is six all about? Wow, good job. You're the only one that's ever gotten that right when I've done this. Uh, six is it's the number of man. And how and how do you how did you come to that answer? Uh, Cheater, this guy. Um, <laughs> How'd you, what, what number tipped you off to that? No, it was from a teaching. Okay. Plus, it's double. Well, that's, that's an interesting way to think about it. I never thought about it that way. But I, somebody said 666, right? And, and that's, that's, that's probably the, 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 you know, the, the big tipping point for the clue on this one. 666. Because what is that? It's the number of the Antichrist, and he's the man that stands in place of Christ, right? And and on the sixth day, man was created. The sixth commandment is not to shed the blood of man. So it all points back to man. If you multiply six times six, what do you get? 36. If you add up each descending number under that, 
36 plus 35 plus 34, so on and so forth? The answer is 666. And you're like, wow, what does that mean? I have no idea, but it's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> That's interesting. Let's skip ahead to eight, right? Because I don't want to do seven just yet. All right? Because we're, we're, we're building up to seven. So what's eight? What'd you say? New beginning. That's exactly right. How'd you come to that answer? In teaching? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you think about it, this is a weird way to think about it. But the eighth day begins a new week, right? Because there's seven days in a week. The eighth day, you start over again. So it's this number of new beginnings. Biblically, it's consistent. Maybe take a look at it. The way eight is often used, it's often uh, applied to new beginnings. There were eight people on the ark. According to the law, a child's supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. It's this new beginning of cutting away the flesh. It's a picture of uh, you know the division in your heart that, that comes with this uh, decision to follow God. Now, if you're if you're into Greek, you know that every Greek letter has a numerical value. And if you add up the letters in the name of Jesus, all six letters add up to 888. And I think that that's appropriate, especially in light of what we were talking about on Sunday. Right? What were we talking about on Sunday? Was Sam was up there and he, and he read uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. You know, he said, if any man is in Christ, then he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, the old, the, and behold, all things have become new. Right? It's 888. There's three numbers. It's divinely perfect, which is exactly what Jesus is. And each one of them is an eight, representative of the new beginning that we have in him. This second life that we have according to him. So what about seven? What is it? Yeah, that's right. Seven is all about completion. There's seven days in a week. Right? There's seven colors in the light spectrum. If you take a look at the book of Revelation, the book that completes the Bible, there's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven churches, seven stars, seven lampstands, seven plagues, seven bowls. It's as much a literal picture as it is a symbolic one. This is the book that completes the revelation of God. And it's packed with sevens. Jesus said seven things from the cross. And then it was finished. His work was complete for salvation. So when Moses says that there's seven nations that oppose you, it, it's a clue for you to look closely and to consider what this might be saying to you. He's saying seven nations greater and stronger than you stand against you in your attempts to enter the promised land, this land of milk and honey, this, this land that's a picture of Christianity, isn't it? This life that, that God is drawing you into to, 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 to live after everything that he has for you. And as you're coming into it, he's saying you will be completely and powerfully opposed. These people, this world system does not want you here. They're going to do everything to keep you out of here, and it's complete. You can't stand up against it. You can't overcome it. And so we see the first promise of the promised land in the first verse of Deuteronomy chapter 7. 
And the first promise is simply this, that you can't do it. It's a complete opposition. There's a great weight of symbolic meaning there in this simple number. He says, you can't come against them. You can't overcome them. But in verse 2, when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. He says you can't stand against them. But the Lord your God is going to destroy them. Saying you can't do it. You're completely outgunned. You're completely outmanned. It's a complete opposition. As you attempt to enter in, the first thing you need to know is that you can't do it. Right? How often do we lose that lesson in the church today? Right? You know, I, th I think so often pastors just want to paint the picture of Christian Christianity as an easy journey. You just go skipping through fields of daisies and it's just sunshines and lollipops every day. He's saying, no, it's going to be a battle. It's going to be Brutal. You're going to be opposed at every angle. Between the world, the flesh, and the devil, it's appropriate to say that it's a complete opposition to you. And while you should never underestimate the opposition, you can never underestimate the God who is able to equip you to overcome that opposition. So the first promise associated with the promised land is that you can't do it. The second promise is that God will do it. God is greater than any enemy that you'll ever face. There's nothing that can stand against you when he's with you. You know, I was at a, was at a funeral on a Saturday and, um, it was for uh, a, a young kid that was in the youth group when I used to, to serve at, at Upland. I used to teach him at Young Men's Discipleship. And, um, and his father went up to speak, and he opened up his Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he read what's got to be my favorite verse in the entire Bible. But it never meant more to me than at that moment. I'm sure Gil and Mary know exactly what I'm talking about. It's, it's one thing to have this understanding of what it means when God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness from my perspective. But when you consider that the person reading that was standing next to his child in a casket. It means something completely different. And this is what this promise is all about. That you can look at yourself and listen, the person you were before you entered the promised land, before you entered into your Christian life, and the person you are now in your Christian life is still that same person that God is speaking to in 2 Corinthians 12, where he's still saying to you, you're weak. 
You can't do it. But the promise is still appropriate because his grace is still sufficient. That in our weakness, that, that, that in that place that, that, that we feel insufficient, ill-equipped, in that area that we can't stand up because it's too much, because there's this complete opposition against us that's weighing down on us. He's still saying, I know who you are. You're still that same guy. You're still weak. But my strength is made perfect in that weakness. It's not a thing where you look at the first promise and say, well, you can't do it. But God can do it. Oh, forget about the first promise. The second one's so glorious. No, they go together. It's the it's in the acknowledgement of our weakness that we find the power of God's great strength. And so this was the promise that was sent with the nation of Israel. Hey, you're going to stand up against this seven-nation opposition, but you're going to do it in the power and with the authority of Almighty God. And daily, as we walk in this promised land of Christianity that God has called us into, this is what he's saying to us. Still, every day, you're going to be opposed, and at every angle. But I'll be with you, and I'll deliver you. All you have to do is have faith and enter in. What is faith? What is it? I saw lips moving in your sounds. What is faith all about? It's, yeah, right. It's believing. It's trusting, right? And it's not a it's not a mystical word. It's it's just really kind of a simple verb, right? You just believe God, and then you do something about it. You know, you go out there and you prove it. He says, "Okay, do you believe me? Then enter in and trust me." You're going to be completely opposed. You can do it. I'll be there with you. Go for it. And these seven nations, you'll watch them fall before you. Now let's see if that happened. Judges chapter 1. Let's start at the end in verse 27. Read through the rest of that chapter. All right. Believe in God. Go conquer the enemy. Verse 27. But Manasseh did not. <laughs> And that's a good clue how the rest of this is going to go, but we'll read it just for kicks. Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth Shen or Tanach. You're going to have to excuse me. I'm a bit rusty in Hebrew. Or Dor or Iblam or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. Who would have thought? When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. But the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kidron or Nahalal, who remained among them. But they did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Ahlab or Akzib or Helba or Aphek or Rehob. And because of this, the people of Asher lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. Neither did Nephtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anoth. But the Nephtalites, too, lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. And those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anoth became forced laborers for them. 
The Amorites or confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. And the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Herez, Agilon, and uh, Sha'albim. But when the power of the house of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from the Scorpion Pass to Salah and beyond. So how'd they do? How'd they do? What happened? Okay. Now that's true. It's a very difficult thing that they had before them. Did they accomplish what God promised them? Which is complete destruction. Now we'll get to that. Right? And, and I, I acknowledge the fact that, well, you know, let's give them some credit. They enslaved some of these pagan people and, uh, that's not easy. Um, so we can give them some credit. They did pretty good. They did pretty good. Did God promise them pretty good? How did they end up with pretty good? And it's one word and you can write it over the entire book of Judges. And we're going to go back and, and see, starting in verse 1, how they ended up with pretty good. But the one word is compromise. And uh, and it was compromise in the little things that landed them in the land of pretty good Christianity for all practical purposes. And it's a very practical lesson for each one of us. Compromise, if you want to write down a a sort of functional definition for the word is when we settle for anything less than God's best. And I think that broadens the scope of compromise more than we would like to think of it. It makes it a little bit more uncomfortable for us. It's when we settle for anything less than God's best. And compromise is progressive Often it's slow, it's subtle, and it's small, but it eats away at our Christianity. Very rarely do you see someone, you know, at a Bible study, raising their hands, worshiping the Lord, and just reading their Bible, and, you know, really involved. And, you know, then you get a call later that night, and it's like, really, that guy got a DUI? You know, on his way home, I, he went to a bar after church? I mean, just, you don't hear of that very often. And there's a reason for that. It doesn't happen like that very often. Usually it's this slow process that takes a sequence of decisions that takes you from the place where you're there with Moses on the plains of Moab and you're excited and on fire about the Lord to the place where you're bunking with the enemy that you've allowed him to inhabit the land with you and you're sharing the same space. But there's some common steps that we take to get there. And we're going to study this book chapter by chapter. So there's going to be some holes in today's study. You know, I, I, I you, you can go home and, 
and, and read it there and be blessed by it. There's so many glorious things in this chapter. It's hard to, to do it all in under an hour and a half. Um, but, but I'm already teaching a little bit longer than I would like to keep you. So I, I have a monotone voice and I know that. So we're going to begin in verse one and we're going to, we're going to look at this first step of compromise that leads to this place of pretty good. And it begins there in first, in verse one, Judges chapter one. It says, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. What a wonderful verse. You could do an entire study on just, on just that little thing right there. Just those two verses. You know, they come before God. They go, God, what do you want? And God says, you go. Oh, that's glorious. I could rewrite the rest of the book right here. And they went, right? Complete victory, right? Because when God says it and you do it, then you have the assurance that he's with you in it, right? God, what do you want? I want you to go. Verse three. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, they said, uh, how about you come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites? And we, in turn, will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. You know, they could have gone into battle believing God. But instead, what did they do? They looked to their friends and family, right? And it's sad, but we often do the same exact thing, don't we? God's put something on our heart. God set something before you, and you know what you have to do. But then we start looking around at everybody else to tell us what to do and to help us do what we have to do. Instead of just believing God and doing it. You know, in the last chapter in my New Testament, Matthew chapter 6, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus says, you know, don't worry about anything, right? God's going to take care of it. You don't need to worry about these things when you got God. You know, you know the, the, the lilies of the field, they don't toil, they don't spin. You know, God's mindful of them, he takes care of them. How much more is he going to take care of you, right? But instead of believing that, what do we do? We talk to everybody else and try and have them solve our problems for us. And it's just easier that way for some reason for us. And, and well, I can talk to them, he can take care of it. And it's justifiable when we do it, isn't it? I'm sure Judah could have justified this. Well, we're just, I mean, they're my brother. I want to go up there and let's do this thing together. Let's partner up in the Lord. You know, and you can always, I can always justify it. Why are you talking to them about your problems? Well, because they're, you know, they, they, they've dealt with the same thing that I've dealt with. And maybe they can give me some good advice on what to do in this situation. It's so easily justifiable. But Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, you of little faith. The pagans do this. This is what Jesus says. You have little faith. You're acting like a bunch of pagans. You're acting like you don't have a God that's watching over you, that's going to take care of you. Why are you going to these people? 
when you have me. Aren't I all that you need? You know, we call out to God and we're like, God, what do we do? And God tells us what to do. And then the first thing we do is call up a friend and ask them what they think we should do. Instead of just listening to God. He says, all you need is me. Just go in there with me. Just have faith in me. A second, I love this part. We could spend a month on this part. We're not going to. Verse 4. This is the second step of compromise, this descending pattern that they, that they, uh, this descending path that they take that ends up starting in verse 27. But in verse 4, when Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. And it was there that they fought against Adonai Bezek. And, and, and fought uh, against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Interesting. I love that. Then Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings and their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him back to Jerusalem and he died there meaning that he lived out the rest of his life there and eventually died. And it's this interesting character of Adonai Bezek. They, they fought against him, they chased him down, and then they hacked off his, his big thumbs and his toes. And the idea with that is that if you would cut off the, the thumbs of a warrior, he would no longer be able to wield sword in battle. He wouldn't be able to use a bow and arrow. He'd be useless in battle if you cut off their, their big toes. They can't stand with any sense of, in, of balance in battle. So, I mean, he's useless as a warrior. Adonai Bezek gets his thumbs and his big toes hacked off, and he's looking there at the men of Israel, and he's like, yeah, this was, this was the right thing to do. You know, I've done this to a lot of guys, and now it's happened to me, and he's okay with it. But the question becomes, was God okay with it? Was God okay with this? Exactly. Yeah, they took him back to Jerusalem, and and he he ends up dying back there. But you know, I don't want to make God sound bloodthirsty. But back in Deuteronomy, he that's what he said. Yeah, he he didn't say marginally dismember them. You know, he said destroy them. You know, this is this is what he said. He didn't say you know I just I want you to to inconvenience them. Be inconvenient not to have thumbs. He said, "Annihilate them." This is what God told them to do. And 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 and, and you see here what's already happening uh, to to Israel, and they might easily justify it by saying, "Well, we were kind of obedient. We kind of did what we were supposed to do." But partial obedience to God is the same as disobedience. And we see here in the character uh, and, and in the punishment of Adonai Bizek that Israel began to accept the standards of the world rather than the standards of God. And you see this in Adonai Bizek's response himself. It, this was his standard. This was what he did to people. And he said, this is okay. You know, I did this to a lot of kings. Now you did this to me. And, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm okay with that. And then Israel could look at that and they say, oh, good. 
He's good with that. Let's just do that. But it, that's not what God asked him to do. So they were only going halfway. They, they had this new standard of, of right and of righteousness. And they were flirting with the world. They were straddling the fence. And they could still say, but I did all of this stuff. It's okay for me to do this thing. And that's the first thing that'll come out of your mouth from your compromising heart. You see, they'd already taken their eyes off God. And now it's manifest in their flesh. And they're starting to make these decisions that are already just pretty good rather than right and righteous. You can't stay in the flesh very long. Before you know it, you're going to end up in verse 21 where you've made your bed with the enemy. And the Benjaminites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites. Verse 21, who were living in Jerusalem to this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjaminites. They'd become roommates. They were sharing the same space. It started in the heart where they were just looking for extra help. That's a small thing, right? I mean, who would look at somebody in that situation that's walking around talking to people about their, about their troubles and about their trials and say, you, you're on a terrible slippery slope. You need to repent. But it's already begun. And that compromise took them to this justifiable sin of changing the standard and going part of the way in serving God, but not going all the way in giving their lives to God giving their complete obedience and attention to God. And they ended up at this place where they're very comfortable and cozy with the enemy. But it was little steps that took them there. It's little steps that got them there. I'd like to review these steps really quickly before we conclude tonight. It's already been an hour and some change. The first step. For your notes, they took their eyes off God and they put them on people. And it's worth writing down. They took their eyes off God and they looked to their brothers, right? So they put them on another person. There's something to consider. When people are the problem or the solution you've already lost your focus. And, and, and as I was studying this week and as I was praying about this passage, there's something that God really began to drive home in my heart. The minute people are the problem or the solution, you've already lost your focus. Because they aren't. People aren't the problem. And they're certainly not the solution. But when we put our eyes on them, our eyes are no longer on God. We're setting ourselves up for a fall. 
You know, Jesus said you don't need to worry about these things. You have God. God's promised you, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, sufficient strength for your weaknesses. When we're in a moment of weakness, we often look at people as the problem or people as the solution. But what does 2 Corinthians chapter 12 tell us? Are people in that passage? They're noticeably absent. God doesn't tell Paul when Paul's asking about the thorn in his flesh to go visit a doctor. Now, I'm not saying if you have a trouble, you shouldn't go see a doctor. You know? But God leaves that out. What does he say? He says, just turn to me. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So the minute we take our eyes off God and we start putting them on people for either the resolution to the problem or as the source of the problem, we've already lost focus. We need to just believe in God as our sufficient strength to get us to this second part of the promise where he does it. And the compromise in the heart led second to sin in their life. And this is the way it works. That's why you need to set up the boundary around your heart before it ever comes deeper, that seed's planted in a practical sense in your heart. The minute you start seeing the effects of sin in your life, you know that you need to scale it back and deal with the issue in your heart. You need to take that before God, confess it, have him clean it out. And second, after the compromise in their heart, the sin in their life, third, the enemy was in their house. And there are many in the church today who have a co-resident of the enemy in, the, in, their, in their life because they've allowed this compromise in their heart. They've allowed this little, maybe even seemingly justifiable sin through the gate of the heart. And they've sown to the wind, as Paul would say in Galatians, and now they're reaping the whirlwind. And if I'm God, right, you're like, it's, it's your first Bible study already. This is how arrogant you are. No, I'm just, it's, 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 I'm just saying, if I'm God, right, I'm looking at him and I'm saying, well, you've made your decision. This is what you've chosen. And I hope you're happy with it. Right? You didn't choose me. You didn't choose to believe me. I told you in verse one that I would take care of you. You just enter in. You just do what I tell you to do. Everything's going to turn out great and glorious. But you didn't choose me. You chose this. So now have this. But aren't you so happy that I'm not God? Right? And that our God is patient and merciful. And that he's always faithful. And as much as this is a book of human failures, and this chapter has been all about it, it's a book of God's faithfulness. And in chapter two, we're going to see it. We just started the first step in the four-step cycle. And we've seen their sin. And we're going to begin to see their suffering. You'll notice something wonderful. Right? About chapter two. How does it begin? The angel of the Lord went up. Isn't that wonderful to hear? Oh, these people have gone so far, and they've fallen so short. 
they've landed in this space of compromise and they're in a very dark place. But you can see right here at the beginning of chapter 2 that a candle's burning and God's still working. And he's going to come through and redeem his people, just as he always does for us. Isn't that glorious? Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Next week we'll continue through and see the, the wonderful work of our Lord, redeeming his fallen creation. Lord, I come before you and I'm so humbled by you. It's so easy for me to slip into a compromising heart where it's just not completely reliant upon you, where practically I don't completely trust you because I'm worried. I'm worried about so many different things in my life. I'm troubled by them and they're a heavy burden upon my heart. And you just say, why? This is how the, the pagans act. You don't need to act like that. You have me. Oh, Lord, thank you for that. I thank you that you're there for us, that you save us, that you lift us up out of our compromise, that you redeem us. Lord, you don't just leave us in our fallen state. And truly, you are a great and glorious God. And Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that, that we know you, that we're in a relationship with you and that we get to call you our Father. And Lord, it's in your name we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.